This is episode 83 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Your Brain at Work. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm really pleased to have a scientist on the show today. I encountered Jason Shepard. I think through Twitter when he took over the feed uh, for scientists and he was talking about the brain and I was very intrigued by what he had to say. So I'll introduce him first. He's an associate professor at uh, the University of Utah. He is the John M. Huntsman Presidential Endowed Chair and Chair Zuckerberg Initiative Ben Barr's Investigator. Okay. Uh, His work combines neuroscience, cell biology, biochemistry to understand how the brain stores information and how this goes wrong in neurological disorders. He's uh, originally from New Zealand and got his uh, bachelor's in science at the University of Otago. hope I'm saying that right. Yeah. His his PhD at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and postdoc training at MIT. Uh, He's won a few awards as well. I won't read them all, but he comes to us uh, with many credentials. And welcome to the show, Jason. Yeah, thanks, Jennifer, for having me. It's good to be here. Uh, So one of the things I recall, if I have this right, when you were posting on Twitter about um, myths about the brain, so things that people think are true about the brain that turn out actually not to be uh, as usual, quite as simple as we think. And if I recall correctly, you said something about, you know, we're not really left brain, right brain people. Can you explain that? Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, a lot of these earlier discoveries of how brain the brain works filtered into the general public and then morphed into these myths that haven't haven't re- or or um ideas that have not been updated since then and this i think came from the fact that of course we have two hemispheres in the brain human brain and they're connected to each other and there are some differences in how function of the brain is associated with each hemisphere. So for example, most people will have the language area predominant in the left side of their brain. And this sort of translated into thinking that some people who had essentially the language on their on the other hemisphere would would have a different kind of brain. Oh. And uh but that hasn't—it isn't really true. So, like this left, this idea that left the left brain people are more logical, or the right brain people are more creative, is totally untrue. <laughs> There's really no such correlation with, you know, people being uh, a certain kind of brain. It's just I think humans like to lump people, uh, categorize how how people um, are, and you know, 
function in, in different ways. It's a it's a continual source of frustration for me <laughs> <laughs> that we seem so determined to classify people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, I think that everyone has a combination of logic, you know, logic, creativity, that sort of thing, and and lumping people into I'm a left brain, right brain. It's just not true. Hmm. That's really that's really fascinating. Is it true to delve into that a little bit? So, so do some people do language processing on a different side of the brain than most people do? Yeah, I mean, this is not my area of expertise, but I think um, there's there's a, a couple of rare cases where it looks like the language function is on the other hemisphere, and it's not exactly mm. clear whether that you know results in a different way of processing language mm. one can think of it like in some rare cases people have their heart on the right side of their chest instead of the left and uh for the most part you won't know that until you know you, you looked at their x-ray or do an mri and so functionally we don't think that it makes too much of a difference but of course where it could be important is when you could have a brain injury or a stroke, and then if it's if your stroke is on the left side of your brain, and you are a normal left-sided language person, you're going to have, you know, that's going to affect your language ability. But if by happenstance your right hemisphere is more predominant with language processing, and you have a stroke on the left side, you could have spared function. All right, so I think my mind is blown here. Some people have their hearts on the right side of their chest. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. When you think that our bodies are mostly symmetrical, mm-hmm. and, but during development, so things like the heart, where there's only one heart, there's, there's our, there are mechanisms to place the heart in the right place. And so in most people, it's on the left side of the um, body, but in some rare cases, it can be on the right side. But functionally, they they're pretty normal. So when they do the pledge of allegiance, do they put their left <laughs> hand? <laughs> yeah, I'm just asking. Well, that's the thing. I think most people probably don't know that. Well, won't know that their heart's in the wrong place mm. necessarily until you know they could have uh, they whether they have an X-ray or the you know someone takes an image. Huh. Okay. So back to the brain. Are there other myths that we should be aware of? Well, the one that I sort of hate the most that's a pet peeve of mine is this idea that we only use 10% of our brain. Oh, mm-hmm. um, again, not sure exactly where that originated, but totally untrue. In fact, if you just look at neuronal activity, so the brain activity in, some, in someone who's just sitting in an, in an MRI machine, the most activity often you can see is when you're just not really actively doing anything. You're just meditating or contemplating a scene. Mm. Um, And that activity is called the default network. But it's certainly not true that if we could just boost brain activity in some way, you'd be be able to be much smarter. So that 10% rule is is definitely not true. (laughs) I see. Well, good to know. Good to know that we're not so inefficient that we have all this capacity that we're just ignoring. There's There's something about nature in general that would lead me to think that's probably not the case. Right. I mean, our brains are amazingly efficient at what they do regardless. I mean, you know, artificial intelligence still hasn't caught up with a lot of what brains can do. Oh, not at all. 
No, not at all. I was listening to Econ Talk, and he was interviewing somebody who's an expert on AI. And I just kept thinking during the course of the whole podcast, oh my goodness, they are they are so far from being able to do what human brains can do. It's, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but yeah, <laughs> I, I just kept thinking, you know, there's always a lot of talk about AI catching up, so to speak, but pff, sure didn't look like it to me. You did an Ask Me Anything session, session on Reddit, and there was a question about the mind-body problem, which kind of <laughs> caught my eye. Um, can you tell me what that's about and what neuroscientists think now? Yeah, I mean, so this is a, you know, this is an actually a very old philosophical question of what is the mind and what is the relationship of mind to body it goes all the way back to Descartes, where, of course, he had that famous um, saying that I I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. And so, the, of course, this also is entangled with religious uh, views of the mind. And really, you can lump them into dualism or, uh, or um, you know, materialism, where dualism is that we think that there's a soul and a mind that's separate from from uh, the brain or separate from, from matter. The, the, the other opposing view is that the mind is the brain and that there's that everything in, in the, in the physical reality is what you, what you see and what you have. So, you know, I think modern neuroscience clearly says or clearly shows that the mind is the brain. Mm -hmm. Any perturbation, perturbation of the brain itself in a, in the physical way affects the mind that doesn't necessarily talk to this idea or concept of a soul that could be, you know, separate or transcendent. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to comment on, on the <laughs> right. religious <It's> aspect <laughs> and people can believe what they want. But, mm -hmm. um, but from a, from a science perspective, it's clear that we can understand how the mind works and how the mind is affected in disease or affected by uh, various experiences uh, by understanding the physical uh, nature of the brain itself. Mm -hmm. And then a sort of cor correlate to that is that, of course, the brain is, is not isolated. It's in the body and it's part of the body. And, and uh, I think the neuroscience field is sort of coming to this uh, uh, understanding that, of course, nothing is, nothing is separate. And so the, the, the things that happen in the body separate from the brain can of course affect the brain itself. Um, everything from, you know, physical sensation in the periphery to uh, how does the immune system interact with the brain? How does the gut microbiota interact with the brain? Mm -hmm. It's all a big system. And our brains have of course evolved to control the body. And so um, there's really a continuum between the body and the brain. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense to me. One of the things that you also talked about was memories, which is really your area of expertise. And you explained that memories can be altered, which is why I witness, I guess, why eyewitness accounts can be so unreliable. So can you explain that for us? Yeah. So, you know, we think of um, memory as being like a videotape. And that when we recall the memory, it's it's pretty close to what that experience was. And clearly that's not true. <laughs> many, many studies have shown that 
the idea that we the the sort of factual aspects of a memory that we recall are oftentimes very wrong and part of it's that when you encode the memory it's not like your brain is taking in all the information of the scene it's paying attention to what you are what you think is the most important so for example in a car accident you know there's so many things that are happening as as it happens but usually the most salient experience of a car accident is the feeling of or the 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 actual emotional content of the memory and not necessarily did i know what color the car that hit me was did i know you know how many people were in the car stuff like that where mm-hmm. if it was just a videotape you would be able to recall so there's the just the encoding of the the scene the experience is is not is very fallible in that um your brain is paying attention to particular parts of that experience and not everything but we also think that um every time you recall that experience it gets updated and it gets updated slightly into you know slightly changed because you when you recall that that memory you're going to be in a different uh context you could be talking to someone different about it there's going to be aspects of the memory that you concentrate on that are going to be also slightly different each time you recall and then when when you recall that memory it gets re-updated and reconsolidated and so by the time you've probably recalled the memory at least you know three or four times <clears throat> it's it's quite a different memory so that's that's <clears throat> that's also actually based on the physical we think processes that consolidate the the information in the brain and we can actually use that for actually trying to treat uh memories that may be uh tra- traumatic so, so like PTSD that sort of thing and and so uh therapists have realized that if you can recall a traumatic <clears throat> memory in a safe environment in a calm environment that that eventually helps remove that sort of emotional content of the initial trauma. Yeah, I have to say I find the whole thing extremely mysterious because it, it reminds me of trying to recall a dream. And sometimes when you're telling someone the dream, suddenly you have this realization of a whole bunch more of the dream that comes back. It's such a weird feeling. Yeah and you know so dreams and dreams are a fascinating topic as well we think that part of what the brain is doing while you're dreaming is actually consolidating the information that you experienced during the day and though and the, although it seems fragmented when you try to recall it in in essence it's because the brain is just replaying bits and pieces in a in an order that may not make sense if someone was just uh trying to observe it from a, from a you know outside perspective so yeah so that's why potentially dreams seem very familiar because uh they incorporate but some pieces of what you experienced during the the day or, or the few days before mhm and i have to confess sometimes my dreams are so incredibly boring i'm really ashamed of that <laughs> <laughs> it's like couldn't you think of something more interesting than that <laughs> so to go back to this idea of therapy there's a lot of controversy about uh, people who have experienced trauma 
uh, kind of reliving those those experiences with a therapist and then sort of rediscovering memories. Um, so can you, uh, what are your views about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to be careful here because, I, again, I'm not a therapist as uh, by training, so I can only really comment on the science. But I think one of the black boxes in memory research is that we don't know if the information that you forget, it, you forget it because you just can't access the information. So the information is in the brain somewhere. You just There's some sort of disconnect between getting access to it or does that information just go away? You just lose it. And so that there's no actual recording left. And, and so of course, if there are, if, if, um, <clears throat> if there are, if there is information that's still in the brain and it's a problem with access, then maybe what therapists are doing is being able to improve access to that particular memory. I will say that, you know, I think the danger here is that because those memories are so easily updated, uh, any suggestion by the therapist for what they should be recalling can actually artificially um, change that that memory. For example, if um, instead of asking the question, uh, "Do you remember which car hit your your car in an accident?" if the therapist says, "Do you remember seeing a red car hit your car?" Mm-hmm. more than more than likely that just little suggestion that the car was red would, would influence the, the, the person to say, Oh yeah, that was a red car. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that um, that kind of power of suggestion is, is, is something to be aware of when, when you are trying to recall traumatic events and, you know, therapists are obviously trying to put us, try and help make those um, or understand those kinds of events in a good, better light than may, what may have happened. And that's of course fine, but it does mean that again, you have to be wary of what exactly happened in the event rather than what the memory is telling you. It reminds me of the witch trials, especially when it's an adult talking to a child that you know that suggesting something can really cause someone to quote unquote remember something that yeah it, it's complicated <laughs> yeah no exactly it's it is uh so you have a ted talk which i enjoyed very much although it was pretty far over my head <laughs> um, but you talk in there about the structure of our brain changing when we learn and since i work uh, in the training field, that was something very interesting to me. So can you explain that? Yeah. So I, you know, I think that, um, 20 years ago or so scientists believed that adult brains didn't change much, that all the wiring happens early in development. And once you're an adult, your brain is set. And I think that's, that, that idea has been completely overturned to say that, even adult brains are very plastic. They can change with experience. They can change um, with learning and training. And, and of course, the way we think this happens for the most part is through uh, the connections between the cells in the brain, synapses. And so one neuron, one cell can have thousands of synapses. Uh, but the way it connects to, to, to um, specific cells can really be altered by by learning and, and um, 
and, and experience. And so we can actually study those synapses in the brain. We can look at how they change. Um, we can look at how the connectivity between the cells change and they're very dynamic. So you, you learn, when you learn something, we think that those synaptic connections are, are, are changing in a way to encode that information, to solidify that information. And that one of the ways you, you sort of consolidate information is that you get specific synapses between cells in a circuit and one circuit can really encode or, or store uh, particular experiences or particular memories, even as an adult. And ultimately, that, that we're, what we're trying to understand is well, how do you get uh, those synapses to change? What are the proteins that are really important for that? And can we sort of use what we learn to even potentially boost brain plasticity in the context of cognitive disorders, neurological disorders, where you lose that, that brain plasticity? Mm. Oh, that's really music to my ears, though. We can keep learning even as we age. Yeah, for sure. And so for trainers, and one of the things that I bemoan frequently is how terrible our training is for workers, um, often quite demeaning and simplistic. And so from your point of view as trainers and educators, do you have any advice for us? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we underestimate what our brains can do, and you know, I on the on the one hand, I think that that we can that we should be using what we learn from neuroscience to uh, improve the way we educate and train. Uh, it is true that some people learn in different ways. That some people are better at learning in a visual way. Some people are better at learning at, a, at a, uh, you know using um, auditory cues and i think that this one size fits all is is problematic um and in schools as well on the other hand though you know we do we do know that repetition and you using the same kinds of um learning paradigms is key because that's just how the, our memories work that there's that that repetition really you know nails the learning but again, another example for how our brains have evolved. So we all know that stories capture our attention and that can be mm -hmm. everything from a movie to just listening to a good, a good talk. And we think that's because humans evolved to pass down information through stories. And so one way you can, that some of the, the sort of memory competitions or the people that do these memory competitions get around the the sort of hard memorization of numbers for example is is placing those numbers in a story or placing those numbers in a spatial uh the other thing that we're really good at is, is spatial um information so for example you can usually remember the objects in your house that are very familiar and so if you replace those objects with numbers and you walking through a, you sort of pretend that you're walking through your house it's easier to abstract those numbers in a in, in your house versus just saying well i'm going to remember a, a, a string of digits in an abstract way right that's fascinating do you use any suggestions like that with your students when they're having to learn something you know very complex about neuroscience 
Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I probably should. I mean, I think you know one of the issues with the way we teach science is that a lot of it's just hear the facts and just learn the facts. Mm-hmm. Whereas really, what we should be doing is saying, well, how did we get the facts? Science is a process of you know coming up with information. It's not exa- It's not just about the end point of, of, of a study. And so we sort of emphasize, and one of the things about grad school versus undergrad is that uh, we delve into the sort of methodology and the logic behind how you uh, end up with, with the, the fact or the result. And with that understanding, I think it, it becomes easier to, to learn also the facts because you've worked, you've figured out, well, this is the method that that was used to get to that point. And um, that method can also be used for other studies or facts. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying that understanding is is, uh, key to to really learning. It's not just that you can recite a bunch of facts and then not really put them in in, in a context. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It sounds like it's the context there that... That is very helpful. Right. Interesting. All right, to switch gears a little bit. So virus is a bad word right now. Um, but in your TED Talk, you are you talk quite a bit about virus-like behavior. And uh, I don't know if you can simplify all that for us, but can you explain what you think is going on in the brain? Yeah, and this is, this is a discovery that we made recently in my own lab, and um, we're still trying to figure it out, and it's, it sounds a little crazy. But essentially what we were doing is we're studying a gene called ARC, A-R-C, um, mm-hmm. that we know if you take it out of mice, take the gene out, they have a really hard time consolidating memory. They don't have any long-term memory. So we've been trying to figure out what this gene is doing, why, why is it so important for memory. Mm-hmm. And in the process of trying to understand the protein itself, the biochemistry of the protein, we actually stumbled on this observation that the way the protein was working resembled how a retrovirus works. And of course, that's, you know, a real bizarre observation because we, this is a neuronal protein, it's in our brains. So why, why would it <laughs> look like a virus? And why, why would it have those properties? And so um, as we've delved into it, we've sort of just started to discover more and more interesting aspects of the protein. And um, so the real observation that we made was that when you make the protein artificially, so you can, there's, there are ways to study proteins in isolation. You can basically purify the protein from cells. And when, you, when we did that, we found that, in fact, this protein was forming these large protein structures that look like capsids. So these are the suckable structures that you often see um, graphically represent a virus because what the virus does is make this protein shell to protect its genome, to protect its either its DNA or its RNA. So basically it's a way to, to protect its um, instructions to make more virus. And so when the capsid a viral capsid gets into a cell, it transfers its genome or its information into that cell. And then that cell ends up making more viral, viral protein. And that's how you get the sort of 
this infection where the the virus spreads from cell to cell and turns the cells into making um, more and more virus. So we so going back. So now we have this neuronal protein, and we when we purify it, now it looks like a capsid. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> like, okay, well, this is weird. And it turns out then that what what we think happens is that the cell in our brains, the neurons, are making this protein, and the the capsid, this protein soccerball, encloses its own information, this the information for for making more arc protein, and that it can transfer it from one cell to the other. We're still trying to figure out why it's doing that and what the sort of consequences are, but. Um, one of the sort of real interesting things about this is that uh, we were sort of puzzled about why this protein has this virus-like structure to it. So we we sort of wanted to look at the evolution or the the history of of this gene. So there it turns out that uh, our genome, so our DNA, only 2% of the DNA that we can sequence actually encodes genes. So the genes that, that make the proteins. So 98% of the DNA in our cells is encoding other things. And it turns out that at least half of that is, is some sort of viral uh, sequence or originated from ancient viral infections or are remnants of uh, what we call transposable elements. These are, viral-like elements that can jump in and out of uh, the DNA in the cell. So you, one can think of the DNA as recording this long history of, of infections and oh my. Um, what, uh, but what we now know is that evolution can actually use those sequences over time to create new genes. Right. And, and so this is where we think this gene came from in our brains and it originated from an ancient viral infection and an ancestor long, long ago. So somewhere in between fish and, 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 and frogs. So that sequence came from a virus or, or, or something that looks like a virus. And then evolution, you know, as it does mutated it. And then at some point, uh, a mutation conferred some advantage to that that sequence being expressed in the cell. Uh, and then since then, it's been conserved in, in, um, in all species that have that sequence. So basically, we think then that part of the complex cognition memory functions that we have originated potentially from um, these ancient viral infections. And so it's kind of a, a crazy idea to think that these sort of random events that happen over time can lead to something as amazing as, as memory. Right. That is really fascinating. My sister, well, actually she's at MIT. I didn't even uh, think about it. She works in Ann Grable's lab, if you know oh, where okay. she is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so she uh, works in this area and one of the things I I always admire about scientists is how hard they work with so little revelation, right? It's just mostly no, no, no. <laughs> you know, it's just, but you describe in the talk about looking at the shape of the capsids, if I'm saying that right, and you know, kind of having the hair go up on the back of your neck with this 
Oh my goodness. Look at, look at this. And the, the imagery of that is so powerful. Yeah, no. And I think, you know, I, I often say that as you just described, science is a real toil. A lot of times things just don't work or you get results that are hard to interpret. And so it's rare in your career where you do stumble on an observation that is just completely changes the way you think about how, um, uh, something works. And I think that's, this is definitely one of those. So to bring us back to the more mundane here, I know I have to let you go in a few minutes. Um, are you a fan of any particular, uh, drugs or diets to improve our brain? <laughs> yeah, that's another, that's another dangerous question. Cause I'm sure I'm, <laughs> if I say something either way, I'll get, get some, uh, some, some questions. You know, I, I'd say that one, I think that the problem that we're seeing now is that there's a lot of dietary supplements and unapproved um, drugs that are being touted as being good for your brain when there's absolutely no evidence for that. In fact, I think there's very little specific drug that I could point to you that says, yeah, for sure, we know that could work. One, things that we do know help with, uh, let's say attention and learning caffeine, caffeine has been around for a long time. There's a reason why we like to have our coffee in the morning. There's, there's certainly a lot of evidence that caffeine boosts attention, Mm -hmm. but in terms of diet, I think the things that, um, are good for your heart are also good for your brain. So interesting. And this is both in terms of just normal function, but also staving off diseases like dementia, neurological diseases you know, our brains require a lot of blood for their function. And so if you have good blood flow and if you eat right so that you're not going to get blockages. So of course a stroke in the end, in the end is often due to some constriction or blockage of, of an artery in the, in the brain. So uh-huh. all the diets that, that, you know, or all the sort of um, things that people tell you you should do to keep your heart or blood pressure down, are good for the brain. And that includes exercise. In fact, I think one of the biggest beneficial aspects of exercise is better brain function. And, you know, it doesn't have to be that you're going to the gym every day. It could just be that you do a a 20 to 30 minute walk or you, you know, get outside. Anything that, that will help get the blood going is, I think, ultimately good for the brain as well. Hmm. That's an interesting generalization because I know a lot of writers and problem solvers will often take a walk, you know, not and not think about their problem, not think about their novel, and then report when they come back, like, aha, as well as, you know, we've all had this experience of being in the shower in the morning, getting up and taking a shower and, and suddenly being like, wow, that, you know, that's how we should present that that uh, topic. Yeah. It's kind of interesting that the things that are the same are just all about getting blood flowing in your brain. <laughs> yeah. And those, those, those part, I mean, I would say sometimes the reason why something seems to come out of the blue is that if there's a problem that you're trying to tackle, oftentimes, you know, there's a lot of unconscious things happening in your brain that you may not be completely aware of. And then um, they percolate to your consciousness on when you're not actually thinking about it. <laughs> right. Um, mm-hmm. But I, you know, I think along with this idea that exercise is good for the brain, I do think that 
taking breaks from your everyday work is also good. So for me, for example, I love getting out into nature and, you know, hiking in the mountains, in the desert, all that, all that sort of space that allows your brain to just relax a bit, I think is good for your mental health in general, but also good potentially for whatever um, issues you're sort of trying to tackle. Mm-hmm. Problems you're trying to solve. Yes, I should mention, I meant to say that when I introduced you, um, that you're also a photographer and a skier. So I see a lot of images of you out in nature having a good time, <laughs> which is fun. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. And photography has just been a fun outlet. Um, and partly because I, it gets me out into into nature, but also I sort of like the technical aspects of, of just learning how to, you know, take good photos. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Utah is a spectacular place to take exactly. photographs yeah, for sure. It's really beautiful here. So as a scientist, um, do you have lend any credence to this idea that vaccines cause autism? Yeah. So this is actually, I'm glad you're asking this question because I, this is very, I think topical, but it's also, I think very important. And I want to stress this. There is zero, zero evidence that vaccines cause autism. I'm saying that this is maybe the one of the most well-studied connections in science because of misinformation. And um, no credible study has shown a direct link between vaccines and, and autism. And the consequences of not vaccinating are even worse. You know, measles, flu, these are deadly diseases in young children. They will kill, they can kill. So if there's a message that comes out of this, it's that you need to vac- vaccinate your kids. And, you know, I understand the angst of, of, of parents that have kids with autism or intellectual disability. And, you know, one of the problems with, with this connect or one of the reasons why this, this connection, I think, persists is that the times that you know that when you actually start to notice developmental delays in your child or sort of abnormal behavior, it's about the same time that you do give kids vac- vaccines. I know that parents are always looking, they're looking for a reason to, to, to say why their child is sick. And, um, and that certainly, you know, I, I, I'm empathetic to that, but vaccines are not the cause. And I just, I can't stress that enough. Thanks. Thank you for that. So on this podcast, we really work hard to uh, put information out there so that we can understand each other and work better together and have happier workplaces. And so I lean on science a lot for that because I think it helps us in those areas. So thank you very much for the work that you do, Jason. And before we close, I'm wondering if you would like to let the listeners know where they can follow your work or learn more about science or anything you'd like to share. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I'm pretty active on social media, Twitter, um, at Jason synaptic. You can find me there. My lab's website is www.shepherdlab.org. Um, and of course you can find me via email, um, on the university of Utah website. Um, and you know, I think that I, uh, for me, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk about what we do. And I think that scientists should be talking to the public for many reasons, not just also because we are often funded by taxpayer funding, but I think that we try to, you know, 
take this veil of mystery away from science to say that it's not this this mysterious process that we're doing it's 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 grounded in a in a real method that if we could just explain how that how things work or how we do, how we do that the, do the the science that we do that that there wouldn't be so much misunderstanding in the general public about various um important things like climate change and vaccines and so anything that isn't clear during this talk i'm happy to answer questions um, offline no oh, that's really kind thank you very much yeah thanks for having me that's it everybody you've made it through another episode of dear discreet guide trouble at work In keeping with the new year, we'll be changing our format somewhat as the show has evolved. We'll continue to address work-related problems, but in our second year, we'll be going beyond just an advice show to talk about work trends, labor laws, economics, interesting companies, as well as pranks, bad bosses, and more screw-ups at work. If you have a question about a work-related issue or a comment about the show, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website discreetguide.com. That's D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T. And at that website, you can also sign up for The Pergola, a digital publication that comes out every other month, and get information about training programs, books, consulting sessions, articles, jokes, and resources, all for us to work better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces. And thanks for listening. New shows will be available every Tuesday and sometimes Friday. Tune in so you can hear more about trouble at work.